This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us on today's show. We are continuing our conversations around breast cancer awareness with a reconstructive surgeon. What are some of your options and how can he help? Social media and teens, what do we need to know? A holistic psychologist on hand to help. And marking Menopause Awareness Day with two incredible experts from lifestyle factors and food and exercise all the way through to medical options. Dr. Fiona Rennie and menopause coach Sharon James on hand. And it was Dr. Amma with us for Pets and Vets as we discussed the importance of microchipping and of course taking your questions too. We're talking women's health this hour. The text lines are open. It is your free menopause clinic. And I really mean this. No such thing as a silly question. If it's something you've always wondered about, you've never known who to ask, you've been afraid to ask, this is your chance. It is Menopause Awareness Day and just announced women in the UK are going to be offered routine menopause checks by the NHS after turning 40 and getting support from their workplaces this to, to improve treatment, stop them quitting their jobs, MPs have said. Um, and the NHS is being urged to incorporate assessment of menopause symptoms um, in that midlife MOT test to see if more women could benefit from hormone replacement therapy. Two thirds of menopausal women have said that symptoms have impacted their work, according to a survey of 2,000 women by the menopause mandate campaign. Half said it took more than a year to realise they may be menopausal and only 12% were diagnosed by a healthcare professional. So what about here in the UAE? What are diagnostic and treatment options on hand to help? We've got not one but two amazing experts. Sharon James, women's health and wellbeing coach. She specialises in the menopause and Dr Fiona Rennie, one of the busiest doctors in town who goes by on Instagram, menopause doc Dubai. Both, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm anticipating even more messages than I've already had on the text line. Um, Sharon, would you mind starting and just explaining a little bit about the work you do and why a woman might come to you for advice? Yep, sure. Um, So once they've either gone to, say, Dr Fiona for HRT, then that's not the be-all and end-all of menopausal um, well-being. So they need to look after their nutrition, their diet and their sleep and, you know, holistically looking after themselves. So they'll come to me and we'll go through a whole programme, um, working, you know, with whatever they've got from the HRT perspective and we'll put um, take some habits out of their lifestyle and put some new ones in, let's say, which they they quite, they, they hold on to. <laughs> they don't want to let go. Um, so we, we just managed that side of things because, it you know, HRT is not the be all and end all of looking after your menopause. It, it's holistic. So that's what I do with Putting all those puzzle pieces together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we've already had questions about supplementation and exercise and diet as well, Sharon. So we'll absolutely be picking your brains on that. And yeah. Dr. Fiona Rennie, as I said, one of Dubai's most in-demand doctors and very, very busy and rightfully so because there is sadly still an awful lot of confusion around what perimenopause is, what menopause is and what treatment options are available. Would you mind, and I know this is your bread and butter and you probably mm. say those words a million times a day, but for the benefit of people out there who are still seeking real information about what they might be going through or what they can anticipate. Could you give us some easy to understand medical Mm. definitions of those terms? Okay, so perimenopause is the 10 to 12 years leading up to menopause. So normally late 30s, early 40s, estrogen levels will start to drop and fluctuate and progesterone levels will start to drop. So it's a time where women are still getting periods. They might be regular, they might be irregular, but they haven't actually reached the, ty- 
time of menopause. Definition of menopause is no period for one year. So it's usually average age around 52. Um, So perimenopause can start around 40 and go up to 52. And what women tend to experience, uh, uh, one of the first things that changes usually is sleep. They might develop anxiety. They might feel more overwhelmed by things, feel more irritable, feel like that they have premenstrual symptoms all of the month, um, weight gain, body aches, uh, palpitations. Every cell in the body needs estrogen to function normally. So if your estrogen level is dropped or fluctuating, then a lot of women will experience symptoms. Everyone has their own journey. So some people just sail through, no problem, go through menopause and feel great. But other people really struggle. And unfortunately, perimenopause is not well understood even by the medical profession. And a lot of women are told, you're still having a cycle, you're fine, um, you're depressed, take antidepressants. Well, this is exactly what I was about mm-hmm. to say. You know, I've certainly had this from friends in the UK and it's been in, certainly in the press about women being overdiagnosed antidepressants instead mm-hmm. of having that root mm-hmm. cause of, you know, hormone mm. imbalances as a result of perimenopause. In the, in the menopause world, we say if a woman in their 40s develops anxiety or low mood for no obvious reason, they should be looking at hormone treatment, not antidepressants. Mm. It's interesting when we look at heart disease, we know one of the biggest killers of women. Women are pretty good on the heart front until we hit about 50. Mm. Is that the role of the falling mm. estrogen, Dr. Yes. Fiona? So estrogen is protective of the heart. And if you start hormone replacement therapy within 10 years of menopause, you will get a 50% reduction in heart disease. So that's been quite well studied. Oestrogen is protective. And what about those that the lifestyle factors when we're looking at protecting our heart? And sometimes, as I said, that can be in conjunction with HRT, Mm -hmm. with that oestrogen level being addressed. When it comes to um, heart protection, um, dementia we're going to talk about, I'm sure, separately as well, um, these big threats to women's health, heart, what would you love every woman today listening who might be in their 40s, 50s and upwards to be doing proactively? Uh, you know, I think it's things that we should be doing anyway, whether we go through, whether we're going through the menopause or not. It's looking after your nutrition, looking after your sleep ex- and exercise as well, because all those combinations relate to all sorts of diseases in the body as well. Um, looking at your stress levels, you know, looking at holistically, looking at your lifestyle and seeing how can how can I let go of what I can can't control and what I can control and, and taking it that way. So. You know, doing exercise is obviously the key factor, nutrition and lots and lots of looking after sleep management. It's funny you mentioned stress there because that's one of the kind of the cruel ironies of this time of of a Mm. woman's life is Mm. sometimes you might be at the peak of your career. You may well have children who still need looking after. You may be in that sandwich generation where you've Mm. got elderly parents to look after. Mm. So stress levels will be high regardless. And then you chuck a little bit of anxiety in the equation. Mm. And it's no wonder that so many women feel like they are you know, really, really inhibited in, in their quality of life and their ability to enjoy things. Can I say something about exercise? What happens in your 30s is you start to lose muscle mm-hmm. and muscle gets replaced by fat. Muscle is metabolically active. So muscle has insulin receptors. It helps the production of hormones. And that is one of the reasons why exercise is so important. And any exercise is good, but Weight-bearing exercise and strength training is so important because then you're replacing that lost muscle 
and that helps to stabilize your hormones. And presumably we're looking at the osteoporosis piece as well, which can be really helpful. Okay, I knew that HRT was going to be one of the big topics of, of questions coming in on 4001. And Dr. Fiona, I wonder if you could perhaps really break it down for us in terms of what HRT is and how ultimately as a doctor you decide a treatment plan for a woman going through the menopause if they choose to incorporate that into their treatment plan. So HRT is hormone replacement therapy, but it is also now called, called menopause replacement therapy. So what it is, the purpose of it is, is to replace the hormones that you're either no longer making or that are fluctuating and causing symptoms. The two main hormones that are produced by the ovary are estrogen and progesterone. A third hormone is testosterone. Half of that is produced in the ovary and the other half in the adrenal gland. And that often causes a lot of problems as well. So mostly we will start with replacing estrogen and we will either be doing it to supplement someone in perimenopause to stabilize the fluctuating levels or as a complete replacement in menopause when you're no longer making estrogen. If you're having estrogen and you have a uterus, you also have to have progesterone. So we add in progesterone and some women also need testosterone. So they are the three hormones that make up hormone replacement therapy. And in terms of methods of taking? Okay, so there's three different types. Traditionally, hormone replacement therapy was oral estrogen and progesterone, and it is synthetic. We try not to use that anymore. Um, We can do a lot better than that. The second type is body identical. Body identical hormone replacement therapy is made from yam, the sweet potato, because molecularly and chemically it's identical to your body's hormones. That's bizarre, isn't it? So that's why we call it body identical, and that's why it's such low risk, because it is exactly what your body makes. The third type is bioidentical, and bioidentical is also made from yam, but it's compounded, so it's made up for you. Um, in a compounding pharmacy. Mm-hmm. We had a question on exactly that from Heidi saying, what is the difference between compounding pharmacy HRT and bioidentical HRT? Is one better than the other and why? So body identical is licensed, evidence-based. We have clinical trials proving its safety. We are, It's cheap and it's effective. Compounded bioidentical I find it quite confusing. The individual ingredients are licensed, but there's no clinical trials proving its effectiveness or safety because it is compounded in individual pharmacies and um, we don't know about the quality control. We don't know what goes in them. Mm -hmm. And because everyone gets a different combination, then it's impossible to do a scientific study on it. Um, I prefer body identical and... um, That's my personal opinion, and that's what I feel comfortable prescribing. Can I ask you about a message that's come in from N saying, can you start taking HRT preemptively? My dad had dementia, and I'm worried about osteoporosis. She says she's 43. I think that requires assessment by a menopause doctor before we'd go ahead and just give HRT. Um, I would want to do a DEXA scan and actually, so a bone density scan and actually see if there's any osteoporosis Mm -hmm. or osteopenia, thinning bones. If her bones are good and she's leading a really healthy lifestyle with weight bearing exercise and her diet's good, I'd probably hold off for a while if she didn't have any symptoms. Um, 
It is um, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, um, and I've got a friend who's perhaps you know had quite a, a straightforward cancer diagnosis and treatment, breast cancer, a number of years ago. And she's always asking me, please, please, please speak to your doctors about options for people post, um, post, post-cancer. And the message here is saying, I've been told by my OBGYN that um, HRT is not advisable if there is a history of cancer in the family. Are you able to talk to us a little bit about that, Dr. Fiona? Because body identical is identical to the body's hormones, there's no contraindications depending on family history. So just because you have a family history of breast cancer, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't have HRT. Mm -hmm. Um, HRT doesn't cause breast cancer. If you had a small breast cancer growing, it may accelerate the growth if it's an estrogen-dependent breast cancer. So um, it, it takes a full assessment. So I'll take a full history, I'll get the family history, and sometimes I might say, let's send you to a breast surgeon and see if you need genetic testing to see if you carry the BRCA gene or a similar gene, and then we might, may or may not go ahead with the HRT. But really the only contraindication to hormone replacement therapy is people who have had breast cancer previously. Okay. And that's not an absolute contraindication. That's something that needs to be discussed. And I think that's exactly it. Um, you know, having listened to uh, Dr. Louise Newsom, who I know you know personally as well, who's made incredible strides in the UK about opening up this conversation. You know, she has a free app. She has a clinic. She's said exactly that when it comes to working with people who have had breast cancer, who might have absolutely debilitating symptoms of menopause, saying do you know what, I'd rather take the HRT and I'd rather mm. get rid of those mm. body aches of mm. that brain fog and take my risk I may, you know, and, and, and monitor that, that, breast, uh, that breast cancer possibility closely. Some people will say it's about quality of life, not length of life, and it's a personal choice. And as long as you know the risks... You, you, you can make that decision yourself. Dr. Fiona Rennie with us today, Sharon James in the studio. Um, you're more than welcome to give us a call, as Karen has done on 04871 Karen, how can we help you today? We're talking HRT. Do you have a question on, the, on that? Yes, I do. Thanks, Helen. You, you actually, uh, you and your guests just uh, addressed a large part of it, which was the um, evidence behind uh, the potential association uh, with cancer. Um, But I'll move on to the next part of it. I I was actually on HRT here and I got to a point where I was due to get a refill um, of the supply and um, I couldn't actually source it. Then I went to another healthcare professional and basically um, she put the fear of God in me because it all sort of started to sound like the reason that this uh, actual treatment wasn't available was because there'd been this study and it'd been taken off the shelves in other countries. And I was just hoping you could put some clarification on supply issues and if there's anything associated with any new study that's come out as to why it was difficult to get hold of here. It's such a good question. It is a good question. And we have seen massive supply issues um, out of the UK and it has certainly been in the, in the the case here in Dubai. But we, I think there's kind of two points to that question, um, Dr. Fiona, if you wouldn't mind taking that. So the two biggest issues I have with menopause care in the UAE is access to good quality care and access to medication. In 2002, a study came out of the US called the Women's Health Initiative Study. And that study caused a huge disruption to menopause care in 
worldwide, a whole generation of women missed out on HRT because the study said that HRT causes breast cancer and HRT causes heart disease. That study has been disproven time and time again. But unfortunately, there are still doctors and many of them in the UAE that will tell patients that, that HRT is dangerous and not to have it. Um, that is incorrect. HRT is safe. There are long-term benefits of taking HRT and I actually did a talk at Arab Health in January this year in Dubai and my topic was should all menopausal women be taking HRT and whether they're symptomatic or not and you can make a really good case for that. So we know that it reduces your risk of osteoporosis and also treats osteoporosis. We know that if you start it within 10 years of menopause, you'll reduce your risk of heart disease by 50%. We know that there is a reduction in the risk of breast of bowel cancer and a reduction in the risk of diabetes. And there are some studies coming out that support the reduction of dementia. Obviously, that's a really hard study to do, but we do know that estrogen, when your estrogen's low, that there is a more increased risks of the proteins related to Alzheimer's being laid down in the brain. The brain is a really um, sensitive organ to estrogen, and when your estrogen levels are low, there are so many symptoms related to, uh, to the brain. So with that supply issue question, and I think when you have got someone who mm. has had a prescription, and sometimes women have to fight really, really mm. hard to get that prescription, and then yeah. suddenly it's this, oh, actually, computer says no. Yeah. So the problem is that the body-identical estrogen isn't licensed in the UAE. I, I believe oh. that it's been licensed, but it's not registered, and it's really difficult to work out why this has happened. So I, the licensing did go through over a year ago, and for some reason we haven't got it in all pharmacies. Um, there is one pharmacy that we use that imports it in for us. Some of the hospital pharmacies have good supplies and they will take my prescriptions or take our prescriptions from Genesis. The progesterone component is really easy to find. That's available in most pharmacies because that's licensed and registered here. We have virtually no access to estrogen patches. But in the four years that I have been doing this, we mostly have a decent supply and we know where we can get it. But it needs to get better. Karen, I really hope that helps in terms of putting some peace of mind in place so thank you so so much for raising such an important topic and uh, stay healthy stay well and thank you for getting in touch hey, we've got Sharon James with us today women's health and well-being coach she does specialize in the menopause and Dr Fiona Rennie one of Dubai's most in-demand doctors and the text lines are absolute testament of that ladies we are going to be going how do you feel about a little quick fire round on the text line Sure. We down? Okay. Yeah. Um, message here, no name, and you can be anonymous saying, "What is the when? Sorry, is the right time to see a doctor about perimenopause?" Anytime. Anytime. Yeah. So anytime you've got any questions, concerns, yeah. there's changes. If you just want to know what to expect. There you go. That's it's that simple. We've been talking about HRT. A message here saying, "My mother-in-law already has osteoporosis. She's over sixty. Is it too late for HRT, or can it help?" It may help.
Yeah, it's not. It's never too late to start HRT. If you want the heart protection, you need to start within ten years of menopause. But I have women in their seventies that are still having hot flushes that take hormone replacement therapy. Crikey. Okay, we've had a message here. Um, this is from Chatel saying, I'm 52, still getting normal regular periods every month. How long can periods go on for? So 52 is the average age, but it's a bell-shaped curve, so it could be 60, 62 there you go. So no such thing. No such thing as average. Um, a message here saying, how effective is black cohosh for abating menopause symptoms? Sharon, mm. you'd look at all sorts of different lifestyle factors. You're talking there about the importance of diet and regular exercise, about strength training. What about supplementation? Have you heard anecdotally anything that's been useful and how do you feel about black cohosh in particular? Um, I've had mixed reports about that, um, depending on other supplements that they're having and, and obviously what it's supporting. But just in supplements in general, I, I'm, I'm not a massive fan of them. There are some that we need. Um, but for that one, I think it's quite harsh and it can cause other symptoms as well. So again, it, it's it's something that you need to sit down with somebody like myself or a, a GP to have a, a chat with. When people are coming into <clears> you, and I want to talk about diet in particular now, Sharon, mm-hmm. um, is there anything you're like, sorry, we're going to have to say goodbye to the what? Alcohol. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And this is because the body starts to react and metabolize it in a different way as yeah. we get older? Or we what? just can't get rid of the toxins like we used to do. The liver doesn't function as, as, as well as it does. Um, and, you know, again, every woman is different. And depending on what kind of symptoms that she's experiencing depends on what we need to put it, usually add in mm. and, and, and rather than take away. They're usually deficient in quite a lot of things okay. just to help that whole you know, hormonal balance in general. Um, Joe's been in touch saying surgical menopause at 36 years old. Any special advice? Was diagnosed with a lump in my ovary, did a hysterectomy, had my ovaries removed. Now being followed by my gynae, who's with me through the entire process, pregnancy, found the tumour, delivered the baby, did the test, had the surgery. I'm doing hormonal therapy, <laughs> taking vitamins, calcium and magnesium, but I feel like some more specific follow-up could help me in such a special situation. I don't know what I'm looking for, but any advice would be great. Dr Fiona Rennie? So... The international guidelines state that if you have menopause before the age of 40, you must be on hormone therapy until 50 to protect your bones. Otherwise, by the time you get to 50, you'll have bones of a 60-year-old. So bone density scans are important. Being on the right HRT, being on HRT that makes you feel good and feel like yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, annual mammograms, breast ultrasounds. Um, I, I think really it's been on a body identical hormone therapy that's the important thing and not a synthetic so you just transition really nicely okay um bev says hi guys um i have an appointment with my doctor next week as the last two weeks have been awful i've taken antidepressants on and off since my 20s i'm 45 now and haven't taken them in 10 years but what i have to ask is should i be thinking about hrt rather than antidepressants at this point in my life my periods have been changing Last few years, I've had some pain during ovulation. They've gone from very light to heavy and now getting lighter again, feeling really confused. And the mental toll of peri slash menopause feels too much. So an assessment needs to be done to determine if the symptoms are related to hormones. As I said before, the first line treatment for depression and anxiety for a woman over the age of 40 is usually hormone therapy and not antidepressants. So that needs to be assessed 
um, is I can't answer that question. No, of course. Mm. Um, I'm happy. If, I've already had lots of people asking for both of your details, by the way. So if you want to just send me the word woman, um, I will send the details of both of our experts, Dr. Fiona Rennie in, from Genesis in the studio and menopause coach Sharon James with us. Um, question for you from Priyanka, Sharon, saying, I need to lose some weight and I know it's going to be hard with the menopause. So I'm giving the blood sugar diet a go and see if I can change my lifestyle. I have a great cross trainer that I need to use more. <laughs> um, don't we all? Just gathering dust. Um, but I think that's more for cardio and getting your heart pumping. But I've seen one article mention that strength training is really important. What can I use to try and tone up core muscles, improve my tummy area? Okay, so when we talk about strength training, um, it's the whole body. It's not just the core. I mean, we do need to strengthen the core. It's, um, you know, it's important. But when we look at strength training, uh, we need to pick up some good weight, some really heavy weight. Obviously, your technique and everything is really important. So get that right first. Um, because, you know, as we go through the training, we do a lot of cardio and that can actually be detrimental to um, weight loss um, as we go through that. So definitely do some weight training, heavy weights, um, smaller repetitions. You know, we're all going 12, 16 repetitions. It has its place. Don't get me wrong. Um, but, yeah, definitely doing some good strength training for the whole body, big muscle groups, legs, chest and back. Are you doing yeah. still doing some PT training sessions? Are you working out with women still, Sharon James? Um, That's how we first met years ago. <laughs> yes, um, I do take on clients, yes, of course. But, uh, yeah, I'm more on the educational side of things. But if they want any e- exercise tips, they can more, are more than welcome and to. And some recommendations and as recommendations, well. Okay, yeah. brilliant. Um, now, it's a bit like early, it's a bit like early pregnancy when you Google... What are the signs of early pregnancy? When you Google what are the signs of menopause, you get about 100 different symptoms. Anonymous message here saying, can menopause cause hair loss? Is that something you've seen either in clinic or in studies, Dr. Fiona? Yes. Mm. Hair loss, always need to check vitamin D, vitamin B12, thyroid and iron levels because they can cause hair loss. So that's four causes. The fifth cause is hormonal and then the other cause is ageing. So I usually check blood levels first um, and then uh, may or may not give people hormone therapy. Can I ask you, we talked about issues around two, two, high, two things that you highlighted, Dr. Fiona. One was about lack of awareness and education um, amongst the, you know, the health community and one is about supply. And I wondered if I was to make you, you know, let's say Minister of Health for the entire world, Minister mm-hmm. of Women's Health, what would you like doctors and I guess student doctors to be incorporating into their training for the betterment of women's health and menopause in particular? Well Louise Newson who we mentioned before she has a wonderful course online confidence in the menopause it's brilliant and every doctor should do that and you know it's not rocket science it's actually quite simple um, it's just understanding the whole physiology and why these things happen. But, you know, at any one time, half 30% of the world is in menopause and everyone is going to go through menopause if we live long enough. So it's something really important. And I don't recall any, I mean, I did extra training in gynecology. I don't really remember m- much education about menopause and it was mostly about flushes and as I said before every cell in the body needs estrogen to function normally so you can get all sorts of symptoms and they go often go unrecognized. Mm -hmm. I think things need to change you know Mm. it used to be a case of 
you'd have your menopause and then you would die. Mm. Um, you know, in your kind of 50s, <laughs> well, 60s. That, now we're going yeah. on for decades. It, that's really interesting because 100, 150 years ago, the average age of menopause was 57 and the average life expectancy was 59. So there really was just, matter. didn't matter, <laughs> one part to a woman's life. Now, as we said, you know, it can, it can be decades and decades of living mm. and living quite miserably, to be mm. honest. You know, that, that, that's that I mentioned earlier about women giving up work. You know, it can be an economic disaster to have really capable women taken out of the mm. workforce because of quite manageable symptoms with the right advice. I was listening to a psychiatrist recently who said that if all women went on hormone replacement therapy, there would be very few divorces in the 40s <laughs> and 50s. Mm. And he feels that a lot of divorces happen when women start to go through perimenopause and menopause and really struggle mm -hmm. um, and that once they get there, it's a bit like leaving work. It's people giving up their job because of menopause. Really, it should be, they should be seeking help first and they may not need to give up their job. So same with relationships. A lot of relationships really wobble. Mm. There has been some controversy about medicalizing a, a natural life stage um, with HRT and we're certainly not saying... It is for everybody, but I think the most important message for today is there are options. Mm. Um, and, you know, as someone who had a very medicalized birth, I'm all for it, to be honest. Mm. You know, I, I really, really am. Um, Dr. Fiona, are there any books, resources? Um, we mentioned there um, Dr. Louise Newsom's app, which is called Balance, which is fantastic, that you think would be really beneficial to women and indeed their partners, um, their employers listening today that could be useful? I just think Louise's resources are fabulous. So her, she has her balance app. She also has her website, www.balance-menopause.com. She has podcasts. She has short videos. She has information leaflets. Uh, she has them in several languages. And it's good evidence-based Information and that's the important thing. Making sure that you are reading the good, the correct stuff. Absolutely, and going into an appointment armed with knowledge mm. and knowing what you're asking mm. for. Sharon, any final words from you? Yeah, and on the other side of that, you from the personal, from the training side of things, Dr. Stacy Sims is amazing mm. in terms of how women should um, reevaluate how they train, mm -hmm. and she's got some really great, refreshing research coming out about how women should train. So that's another one. Thank you so, so much. Really, really appreciate your time. World Menopause Day, Sharon James and Dr. Fiona Rennie speaking to us this afternoon to make life hopefully a little bit easier. Joining us live on the line is Dr. Frank Conroy, a UK board certified consultant, plastic reconstructive and cosmetic surgeon. He's trained in the UK, Ireland, North America and has been in both private and NHS practice. He can be now found at Genesis here in the UAE. Um, Dr. Frank Conroy, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thanks, Helen. Uh, thanks for having me uh, on the show. Um, we've talked about so many different aspects of breast cancer awareness over the course of October so far from you know, genetic components. We were talking yesterday with someone whose life has really, I mean, it sounds strange to say, kind of flourished really since having her diagnosis in terms of getting back into the world and starting new things. Well, something we haven't touched on, and I'm so glad you're the one to kind of guide us through this topic, is that plastic surgery reconstructive angle. And I know people that have had surgeries with you, both cosmetic and reconstructive. So I know we're in safe hands with you, Dr. Frank. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your experience in this area in particular? Sure. Um, I think certainly with 
express reconstruction, sure, it's not the most important aspect of breast cancer treatment, but it can certainly help uh, a patient, uh, a woman, overcome some of the negative uh, emotions associated with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, the number one factor about breast reconstruction should be that the patient uh, should be at the centre of all the decision-making processes because breast reconstruction isn't for everyone. Certainly, there's a, a trend now where women don't necessarily want to have uh, breast reconstruction following their mastectomy or their breast cancer surgery. And so, really, it's my job to try and lead the patient through that decision-making process, whether or not they wish to pursue surgery at all, and then explain to them just the various options mm-hmm. that are available uh, to them here in Dubai. I think that speaks to such an interesting point, actually. I mean, you're saying it's, it's not the most important, but I think for some women it is one of the most important things when it comes to claiming a bit, you know, of identity they had before. But as, as you rightly say, you know, um, yesterday we had fantastic guests in the studio who's chose not to have any reconstructive surgery. One of my best friends has stage four breast cancer right now and is, you know, what her daughters call wonky um, right now. But I know some women, it's been really, really important to them to have that reconstructive surgery. And I think having those options made very clear and some of the processes involved in, in those different choices um, laid out by someone who, who really does know what he's doing is, is really, really crucial to have that bit of information. So what are some of the kind of common misunderstandings then that women can have when it comes to breast reconstructive work, Doctor? I, there's two sort of decisions that really need to be made by the, the patient in conjunction with their oncologist, their breast surgeon, and their plastic surgeon. And the the first one is whether or not they wish to pursue an immediate reconstruction Mm. or a delayed reconstruction. So immediate would be performed at the same time as their mastectomy. And a delayed reconstruction would be a reconstruction that's performed at another point. Now, there's no right or wrong uh, between those two decisions. It's really what the patient wants. It may be that the patient doesn't feel that they're in a position to go through a mastectomy and a reconstructive process, and they just want to deal with the oncological side of things, Mm -hmm. pursue their oncological treatment, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and then perhaps visit uh, reconstruction at another point. When you say another point, could could that be months, you know, years, even a decade after having a mastectomy or or a partial surgery? Wow. Absolutely. A delayed reconstruction uh, can be performed at any time. So it doesn't have to be done as part of the surgery. Sure, it might influence the method of reconstruction, mm. but no, it, it can be done at uh, at any time. And that's, uh, again, like you, you sort of uh, suggested that it's often uh, a common misconception. Oh, well, you've got to have your reconstruction done immediately. That's not necessarily the case. Before we go to the tax line, Doctor, I wanted to ask you about what patients can do pre- and post-surgery to ensure the best results. And when I say best results, yes, we can talk cosmetic, but I'm also thinking about, you know, range of motion and pain and, and, and quality of life. What do, what do you tend to recommend pre- and post-surgery? Uh, I think pre-surgery, uh, it's like any, you're going in for any operation. Um, you want to be ideally at your ideal sort of goal weight. Um, that's perhaps more... Um, 
needed for the cosmetic side of things, mm. if you think about tummy tuck, breast reduction, etc. With regards to breast reconstruction, really is to adhere to you, what the oncologist is, is saying in terms of if there's any supplements that need to be taken uh, because you've had either radiotherapy or uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and typically high-protein diet, vitamins, uh, and general supplements. Post-op, um, it's really, you need to listen to the surgeon. It's not that you're going to particularly do any severe damage following your surgery, but it can hamper your recovery if you push things too far. Mastectomy uh, and reconstruction, double mastectomy with reconstruction is a really major surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think women often take it upon themselves to, well, look, I've got to get back uh, in the saddle. I've got to look after the family, the house. And they need to learn just to take a step back and, and look after themselves mm-hmm. because it's a major surgery and it can hamper your recovery if you try and push yourself too much. So it's really taking things easy I, you know I don't want to see you at the gym I've seen some of my patients on Instagram lifting weights and I'm just crying in my Go office thinking, what are you doing? <laughs> um, but it's, it's just those sensible things you know make sure that you attend your, your uh, post-op uh, clinic appointments if there's any concerns that the patient has and often it's the patient who is the first person to recognize that there's a problem it's not the doctor or the nurse I want them to come and call me, say, look, I've got a bit of redness, I feel I've got a bit of a fever, whatever. We want to hear about it. And the sooner we hear about it, the sooner we can implement something to prevent any infection, for example, or anything untoward happening. Thank you. Dr. Frank Conroy is with us today. The text line, we go. Um, Charlotte's saying, hi, both. Just wondering about Dr. Frank's experiences and expertise with implant reconstruction after mastectomy, particularly over or under the muscle question. My mum is having a preventative double mastectomy soon and needs to make a final decision. She had settled on under the muscle, but now wondering about the impact on activity and exercise. I'd be grateful for insights on either, please. Good question from Charlotte, and I, I know it's very hard to say this or that, um, but could, could you speak to perhaps both options there? Sure, no, uh, no problem. So implant-based reconstruction, very, very popular. Um, if you're having a prophylactic mastectomy, very often you can perform what we call a director implant. So you can go straight to an implant, and you're quite right, there's two places that we place the implant, either on top of the muscle or under the muscle, either can give fantastic uh, results. Under the muscle, it tends to be my preferred option um, purely because it just helps camouflage uh, the implant a little more. So you tend not to see the the implant as obviously, and also it camouflages any rippling uh, associated with with the implant. With regards to sort of impact on movement, uh, no, it has very minimal impact on the movement in fact that that's where we would place uh, an implant for a breast augmentation most of the time uh, i've performed surgeries on plenty of personal trainers and, and patients who are very keen on the gym and it, it really doesn't hamper uh, movement afterwards thank you
hope that helps, Charlotte, and all the very best to your mum. Um, no name on this message saying, I hated living wonky with one boob. It drove me up the wall, so I went back after a year and they removed the other. I don't wear prosthetics um, and I live very comfortably flat. My only problem is hypertrophic scarring on one side. Can Dr. Frank help with that? I don't know if this is something you help with in surgery, if there's any advice you can offer on scarring today, Dr. Frank. Sure, absolutely. Um, I often see a lot of uh, patients with problematic scars. Um, there's, there's two sort of uh, routes that you can take. There's non-surgical and the surgical. The non-surgical would include steroid injections. They tend to help flatten the scar. And often associated with hypertrophic scars is severe itching or hypersensitivity of the scar. And steroids do a really good job in reducing both of those. Botox in scars has been shown to uh, improve the appearance. And then there's lasers, including carbon dioxide laser, um, that can help smooth the, uh, the contour of the scar. The sort of the nuclear option would be surgical excision to cut the scar out mm -hmm. again completely and resuture it. Um, and then probably the most effective in reducing the risk of hypertrophic or keloid thickened scarring would be radiotherapy, uh, believe it or not, to the area, typically within 24 hours of the, uh, of the surgery taking place. So plenty, a few options there. To this anonymous list, there's no name on it, but I, I'll reply with Dr. Frank's um, profile there on the Genesis website so you can have a chat. And it's very hard without you in the studio and without photos to see, but um, hopefully you guys can, can have a chat off air. Um, and the message here is saying, not relating to breast cancer, but I'm very keen to get a best breast reduction. Um, they're making me hunch and partly because they're lopsided, but I do have a few concerns. Firstly, I am overweight. BMI is 32. And secondly, I'm on medication for high blood pressure, age 50. Other than that, I'm in reasonable health and very keen for the surgery. But would these factors stop me being a good candidate? Thank you. Are you okay to speak to that, Dr. Frank Conroy? Absolutely. Um, breast reduction surgery is probably one of the commonest procedures uh, that I perform here in, in Dubai. Um, patients can often find themselves in a bit of a vicious um, cycle with regards to this. They say, oh, well, I, I'm overweight. But the breasts actually physically prevent them from exercising to their full potential and, and losing the weight. So they're sort of stuck uh, with very large breasts and wanting to lose weight but unable to do so. So a BMI of 32, it is admittedly on the slightly uh, higher side with regards to breast reduction surgery. But if we could potentially get that down even slightly, um, she would be a good candidate. With regards to the medications, um, no, as long as blood pressure and other uh, comorbidities are well controlled, I don't see any reason why she wouldn't be a good candidate for the, for the surgery. Um, all the patients would be reviewed by the anesthesiologist and should they want to sort of pursue any investigations, uh, they'd be able to clear a for surgery prior uh, to that. The unfortunate thing with regards to breast reduction surgery is that uh, the insurance companies tend to view it as a cosmetic procedure. Interesting. It really isn't. No, especially when you're talking about, you know, back pain. You know, I have had friends have had migraines as a result of um, of this. And as you're talking about there, the, you know, the, the, the benefits in terms of having that done for your overall health um, and, and BMI. That's a really interesting point. Is there a way around it, Dr. Frank? Do you know people who know people? <laughs> No, no, absolutely. There, there is a, a legitimate way of pursuing breast reduction surgery, 
um, through your insurance company. There, there's something called the Schnur scale. What? Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's, 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 it's a bell curve, and you need to sit within uh, a certain percentile on this. You measure something called the body surface area. It's not the BMI, it's the body surface area. It's, it's similar, but just slightly different. And on this scale, it stipulates that if you have a BSA of X, then you need to be removing at least X amount of grams of breast tissue for it to be considered a functional procedure and not a cosmetic procedure. That's really interesting, so that distinction. Measures. We can take those measurements and write our report. Obviously, if the patient has supporting evidence, including that they had to go see the physiotherapist, mm -hmm. uh, they've got degenerative uh, C-spine issues, things like that, then no, we can, we can put a report together and certainly push uh, the insurance company to approve this because it has a, a documented lifestyle improvement. You know, no question, this is a functional procedure. Um, and it improves the quality of life no end, easily scores the highest out of all the procedures that I perform in terms of patient satisfaction. Dr. Frank Conroy, that's, that's really, really interesting to know. I'm sure a lot of people today um, perhaps completely unaware of that as an option. So thank you for both your insights, as we said, on reconstruction, but also what's available in terms of that insurance. It's not just about cosmetic, it is about quality of life. So thank you so much for your time today. Really, really appreciate it. Great to have a proper chat. Um, and am I okay to share your profile on the website if anyone wants your details? Of course, no problem Perfect. at all. And I'm on Insta as well, at Dr. Frank Conroy. Thank so, you. No, absolutely, no problem. Really appreciate it. Wishing you a lovely afternoon ahead, Doctor. We're talking tech now with Devika Mankani, a holistic psychologist. Devika is also one of the founders of Cheerful. It's an online platform that connects clients with well-being and mental health practitioners. And today we're delving into the world of social media and its influence on teenage lives, relationships and mental well-being. Devika, how are you? I'm well, Helen. How are you? I'm well. Clearly, not I need to wake up a little bit this afternoon. Um, I want to start with you, if you don't mind, Devika. How is your own phone and social media usage looking? Be honest. I am completely honest. It's a daily struggle, <laughs> and I'm a daily, daily struggle. Um, especially when you have young people in your home and you have people around you that need your attention and your focus and you have something else that's just buzzing away and it's mm -hmm. it's around. So we try to do things like put things in a box or, you know, like sit on your phone <laughs> so you don't actually end up using it. But I'll be honest, it's a struggle. Thank you for saying that because it is for me as well. You know, I sat in the car last night finishing up a call so when I got in I could put my phone in my handbag and, you know, kind of leave it when I got, you know, when I have some time with the kids. But we were just talking about addictions yesterday and, and changing behaviours and we were talking about comfort eating actually and how, you know, if, if there's addiction to substances or smoking, for example, it's much easier to go cold turkey on that because it's not something you need in your life necessarily. But we do need to eat food. And I think you could arguably say that we do need phones in our lives in 2023 for all aspects of, you know, socialising and work. Um, it's when it becomes problematic that, you know, perhaps you might need a bit of expert help. And what I worry about is kind of modelling the behaviour to my kids who are six and eight about being on my phone, arguably too much. So I wondered if you wouldn't mind kind of speaking to that about 
What are some of the challenges when it comes to having moderate phone usage and the impact it can have on our kids? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think just to begin with, the definition of moderate is something that we haven't really we haven't really understood because it's this is something that's all very new. We're all human experiments. I mean, we're we're all one big human experiment in this digital age. So there really isn't a number when we talk about balance, there really isn't a number that we can say, well, one hour, three hours, or five hours, because so much of it depends on the context, your family life your work life and and what's happening with you emotionally um but but we know that there are definitely challenges and challenges that children experience um through you know the, the exposure and the use of technology i mean we know we already know that it can be addictive we talked about addictions from the show yesterday but it can be addictive social media use can be addictive we know that children and teenagers and adults get a dopamine hit when they see the number of likes on their Instagram or Facebook or whatever they put out uh, out there in the digital world, it actually there's a chemical reaction. So we're actually going against our biochemistry in a way when we're saying no. Mm-hmm. We're saying no, I'm not going to do that because it's not helping me right now, or it's keeping me from being, um, I guess, more productive or even just being a better version of myself because. You know, sometimes you just don't realize and it's hours and hours into it. But we also know that that excessive and that's I put that in uh, in parentheses use limits activities for creative for critical thinking and creativity in in young people. So if we already know that, then I think we need to sort of start using that as an example in this big experiment that we're in to start to change behaviors and, and how we structure our time. Devika, would you mind speaking to perhaps some of the warning signs, the red flags that we as parents need to be tuned into with our children and teens, that their social media usage might be, and I don't want to say excessive because you say that number is very fluid, but perhaps getting into unhealthy, whether it is what they're looking at, the time spent or relationships that they're, that they're in on social media. What are some of the behaviours that might be exhibited if if things are getting unhealthy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Let's just backtrack a little bit. And there's a couple of things that, that I like to say before answering that is that um, we know the risk of bullying, cyberbullying, stalking, and being um, sort of stuck in these echo chambers is a lot higher when you're online than when you're face to face. So there's research that's actually shown that that children experience more intense bullying online. It's almost like the bully gets a little bit more, you know, um, sort of empowered online versus face to face. So we know that this is happening in the background, um, which is another reason to limit and supervise. But if you see that your child isn't isn't showing interest in the things that they would normally be interested in, right, where, well, I love football, but no, I don't want to go for my for my um, lesson or my class this week because I'm I have something else, whether I've declared it or not, mm-hmm. that I'm thinking about that online. Um, so so just a change in interest in activities. Um, also sleep, because we already know that when you're stimulating and overstimulating your brain and there's too much of that online, sleep will get affected 100%. Um, so those are some of the really perhaps more obvious signs to look out for, but also changes in mood changes in just their normal disposition because that could mean that there's something happening that you're not aware of and that's when I come back to saying parents your children do not need privacy with their phones and with technology at the age of 
eight and 10 and maybe even a little bit older because I hear a lot of parents saying, no, I don't check the phone because, you know, they need children need privacy. And I say, actually, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. It's quite dangerous out there. I quite agree. And we need to we need to respectfully have that conversation and say, look, let's share information so that I can be, um, uh, you know, a voice of reason or help you in some way if something comes up. I think it is about that that sense of openness. I mean, we've got rules in our house about, you know, they're not allowed their iPads during the week, for example, just because they're foul when I try and get them off them. But apart from that, they're not allowed to use iPads, you know, in their rooms. It's always in a common space, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think the very real danger, and I say this as, you know, a mum in her 40s, is it's very easy to go, oh, uh, I don't know what that game is, so I'm just going to let them get on with it. You know, it's a very active choice for a parent to go, I'm going to inform myself about this social media platform, this game. Because unfortunately, and not to get too dark about it, it is in our gaps of knowledge and that ignorance where, you know, predators prey. Um, so I think I think your point there about keeping that communication open and, you know, understanding what they're on and why can be really, really crucial. Um, Devika, I wanted to ask you about, you know, we, we, there's so many studies about the impact um, of spending too much time on tech and have on those real life relationships, those face to face interactions and pandemic, I think, certainly exacerbated that. But what about things like even physical development? Do we have any data on, on that side? Absolutely. We know that with screen time, appetite goes up. Mm. Um, and we're not talking about sort of healthy appetite from being active and going out and running about and then coming home and eating a nice healthy meal, but just kind of mindless eating. Um, and there's some research has sort of pointed has pointed to the sedentary effects of on blood sugar and how that just kind of leads to more cravings as well. So, um, you know, I've had discussions with parents where they've said, well, actually, my child reads too much. She isn't even it's not even social media. She's just not moving. She's happy to read a book, a book a day and then eat lunch. So it, we're coming back to balance. But with tech, it's just about being being aware of the fact that we already know that screen time, for example, is one of those things that can push you into a completely different zone where you're not regulating and listening to your body because you're actually listening to something else. Um, but I wanted to add another website that I find is really, really useful. It's called Common Sense Media. Love it. And I try to... <laughs> do you use it? Yeah, I do. I use it for yeah. movies. Um, so I've, yeah, I've checked exactly. Common Sense Media when my daughter came home and said, everyone in my class has Roblox. I'm like, okay, let's see what Common Sense Media says about that in terms of putting certain parental settings on games, seeing what, um, you know, movie ratings, things like that. My kids last night wanted to have a spooky a spooky Halloween movie night and I was like, I'll just have a quick check and see what's what's deemed okay for a six and an eight-year-old. For anyone that's not familiar with it, why do you, why do you like it? I just think that it's explicit enough. Do you know what I mean? It gives you a number. It gives you a description. You can search. It's a, It's got a pretty good database. It helps you see things. And sometimes when things are not on there, then I have to trust my judgment. But we've actually walked out of movies in the cinema where I've just said, you know, I don't think this is appropriate. Mm. And it hasn't been easy. But I've just had to rely on my judgments just a little, little bit, try and listen to how I'm feeling, and then try and magnify that by 100 to see if, if the kids are feeling anything like that. Obviously, you look at them and you say, is this a bit scary? No. But you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it is um so that's that's a useful resource and i encourage parents to use it and not to fall for that everyone else is doing it trap because mm -hmm. uh, that they that probably aren't that, well, well sometimes they are and that's another show helen it is i think i mean honestly my i've got two big parenting mottos one is 
done is better than perfect. Um, and the other one is great for you, not for me. Do you know what I mean? In terms yeah. of if that works for you and your family, knock yourself out. But I think as parents, we often need to trust our own gut and our own judgment um, a lot more. And Vivica, we've run out, Vivica, we've run out of time. Um, I really wish we could have a bit longer to discuss this. We'd love to have you back on. Um, Cheerful is available now, a fantastic online platform for accessing all sorts of different practitioners about well-being and mental health. And it's Cheerful with an A, which sounds confusing, but it's C H. E-A-R-F-U-L. You are there as well as a holistic psychologist. Thank you so much for your time today. Really, really appreciate it. Will you come back for another chat? Absolutely. Thank you, Helen. Thank you so much. Uh, Devika Mankani speaking to us. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. Groundbreaking science. Life-changing nutrition. Joining us live on the line from Animalia, Dr. Amma. Uh, we're going to be helping you out with all sorts of different animal questions, many coming in on the text line, on the WhatsApp. How are you, Doctor? Thank you so much. Uh, lovely uh, to be in your uh, uh, radio and just finished the surgery, so all oh, fine now. Good, 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 good. What's been keeping you busy there in Abu Dhabi? Any, any interesting cases or any trends you're noticing with some furry patients? Popping through the door. Uh, daily, we have a. Uh, that's why uh, when we choose a topic, it's a kind of daily challenges. It's a kind of routine things. It's like a circle that we are repeating on and off, on and off. So it's uh, almost the uh, same every day. <laughs> I'm sure that you must have had some standout cases over the years, Doctor Amma. What what attracted you to being a vet in, in the first place? Uh, to be a vet, it's a, a very interesting question. Um, basically, uh, from early stage, I did like. Uh, um, chemistry, biology, all this uh, world was attracted from my side. So uh, it was very easy for me to make decision. And then when I was a kid, I had a, probably hundreds and hundreds of cats that I rescued and uh, was um, uh, feeding them in, a sta- in my stable house. Mm. So it was a lot of, uh, um, actually... Less question to, to, to be asked, <laughs> why to be a vet? <laughs> and what about your current menagerie at home? Do you have any, any or many pets that you call your own on a permanent basis? Yes, I have uh, 17 cats. 17 unfortunately, cats? Yes. Unfortunately, no dogs because it, it would be very hard. Okay. to manage uh, dog's life with uh, all these cats. I, I really want to put you on the spot and ask you for the names of all 17. <laughs> oh, okay, no, I'm going to try. Did oh, not, I was not prepared. Go on, okay. try. There's a, okay, first one is Fatty. Uh, Fatty, Bertie, Zoro, uh, Mumsy, Whitey, Ginger. Um, <laughs> who is the next? Um, <laughs> I'm I don't, that you hey, it. listen, listen, they will take it personally when they hear the podcast, but I promise not to yes, send it to yes, them. But I mentioned my favorite one, so it's Fatty. So she's my <gasps> favorite. Yes. Dr. Amma, thank you. I've had actually quite a few cat questions today, so I, I know we're in safe Thanks hands. So um, you wanted to talk about microchipping, and I wondered if you could tell us yes. why you think that's a, such an important topic for us animal lovers here in the UAE. Mm-hmm. Basically, uh, since I started to, when I came here in 2015, I could see there was a lot of animals on the street, which we call them at the moment uh, now in animal community cats, and all these diseases that they are circulating and all this um, kind of accident that we have with uh, uh, community cats is actually related to the microchip uh, database. Uh, this is what is actually my last four or five years mission. Uh, whenever I can, I can... Um, promote such a things. We need central database 
which were going to be uh, connected every owner with um, um, microchip number of the animal. So, for example, when we're leaving the country, when we are um, kind of disconnecting a account, bank account, car and everything, mm-hmm. it would be nice if government uh, would um, emphasize such a thing because when they leave, there's a lot of dumping, uh, dumping animals uh, uh, on the street. So when we get them, they are full of diseases. They are either not vaccinated. So education and microchip database is something that we need to, um, something where we need really, really help. I couldn't agree more for for exactly the reasons that you've been talking about there, Dr. Amo, when we've seen um, some really awful, awful cases over the last couple of weeks. But yeah. we, we've also seen quite a lot of missing um, and, and lost animals and hugely, hugely beneficial in that situation too. Sure. Sure. Uh, there's a couple of examples when uh, some individuals try to uh, manage such a thing, try to sort out a uh, huge problem. It's like uh, collecting uh, plate numbers of all cars in UAE. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible, impossible. So so this is uh, what, what we actually need. This is what is crucial to have uh, some database, for example, during the day, for example, today. I have a microchip number. I put microchip number in my system and uh, I get the name of the uh, owner. I get a couple of details there. Is it vaccinated, not vaccinated? And all sorts of things you can put in the system. That system is, you know, like memory today. It's it's eternal. So you can do whatever you want. It's, uh, opportunities are so 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 many opportunities we can, we, we can have with that system. Well, I could, um, couldn't agree more. And hopefully we will we will see that in our time here in the UAE. Dr. Amma is with us today from Alamalia. Uh, Dr. Amma Grace says, what is the best way to help a cat naturally lose weight? You've got a cat called Fatty, so. I'm, I'm wondering if maybe you are the right expert. Um, what, what would be, first of all, <laughs> before we talk methods, maybe we can talk about when a cat might be, I guess, classified as being on the, the curvaceous side. What would be cause for concern in clinic? And you might be looking at some kind of weight reduction program. Yeah, it definitely uh, can be food, but sometimes we are thinking logically. Sometimes um, there's many underlying issues and especially breed-related issues that we sometimes need to consider. Um, um, many times we think food and, for example, cat tree active, um, uh, exercise and stuff like that can help, but most of the time we need to check the blood and see like a couple of hormones, a couple of other things. For example, uh, recently I have a lots of cases like um, Scottish folk. They are really, really fat, and I believe uh, there is some correlation with uh, with uh, breed issues, and uh, all these hybrids can potentially have a uh, um, problems like that. If we, if we took, uh, for example, Arabian Mau and uh, the, some kind of exotic breeds, you're gonna see that many of them like uh, so so aerodynamics. Um, body um, and they have a very very less fat Mm -hmm. so food there you mentioned there are you know kind of diet specific foods and so sometimes it's about the content rather than the quantity of food if that makes sense to, to try and control weight sure sometimes i tell clients uh, uh, that they know better animals than vets uh, used to do that because sometimes 80 grams for one cat is not the same as 80 grams for another cat. Um, sometimes I hear from the clients they don't even give like um, so much, but uh, uh, cats are still still fat. Um, definitely uh, the selection of food starting from early age. 
So how we how we teach animals. For example, I have lots of clients. They change a lots of food, and changing food is actually causing a lots of problems because cats are pr- programmed not like we humans that we need to have a three different meals. Mm-hmm. Usually, cats needs to have a continuous uh, supply with same sources, same food. Um, and this is kind of my uh, uh, first thing to say: don't change the food. Stick with one good prime food that will gonna be uh, uh, enough for, for 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 any cat or any animal. And increasing some activity as well. So mental and physical stimulation sure. to to burn some calories. I know what the problem is, and our our dogs have put on a couple of kilos over the last last kind of six months or so. Dogs are different. I know yeah. it's because we're all giving them treats, and none of us in our family are talking to each other about how many yeah. treats we're giving them. So yeah, usually I, this is my question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which treats they give. Yeah, too many is the short answer. Um, We've had a message from Ruba, and I think this might be something you can identify with. Ruba says, I currently have three cats and a Labrador living in my house. My husband put the garbage out last night and a black and white cat sauntered in and made himself comfortable on the sofa. My three existing cats had an emergency meeting and vocalised loudly their views on this new guest. They started fighting each other. Trouble is, my new guest, let's call him Bruce, (laughs) is very skinny, meowing, and clearly has been living outside for a while. I have a fully enclosed garage where my car lives, so I've set up an emergency house for Bruce, given him a bed, water and meals. I've spoken to some shelters and rescues, and they basically said, what do you want us to do? I've searched lost and found groups. Um, Nobody is missing Bruce. He's a very loving little chap, but he can't live in my garage because he needs a home and a family. What are the chances of our cats accepting Bruce? Oh. Well, this is a long question, but it's part of things that is uh, related to microchip database. If you would have a, this a microchip, uh, if we would enforce every client to microchip, and if we would enforce that every client has a, a database that is enforced to, to uh, submit uh, application for the animals, we would not have uh, these issues. Uh, what is also my concern here, uh, put on the side now at the moment, microchips, that that cat can be sick. And uh, most of the times what we see is uh, cats have um, uh, wear the virus and those viruses are easy shifted to the indoor Cats and many clients, uh, many pet owners, they think, oh, we vaccinated uh, uh, our cat and that's it, finished, no more uh, diseases, no more problems. But actually, this is just like a 10, 15 percent or even 20 percent of uh, uh, protection. Like uh, there's so many other viruses, there's so many other bacteria that can very, very easy uh, become uh, like a parasites and they, they started to uh, ruin the life of the animal. So I would advise first uh, for um, for the clients who who, who has this uh, situation to isolate uh, Bruce, uh, get him to the vet. I know it's another financial issue, another financial problem because of uh, many times uh, clients choosing uh, um, many other ways that uh, vets are not suggesting. So uh, take him to the vet. Check him on FIV, F, um, FLV, because leukemia virus recently uh, we diagnosed with our PCR machine so many cases. Mm-hmm. So check FIV, FLV, parvo, maybe vaccination status can also be uh, checked. But if there's a financial problem, uh, uh, they can always check PCR on four or five uh, infectious diseases and then think everything what she needs to think. Is he good or not? Because every fight potentially bringing us to the point of behavioral issues, um, 
potential surgeries, potential infectious diseases that some diseases are even not uh, able to treat. There is no cure for such things. Reba, all the very best with Bruce. The fact that you have named him suggests that Definitely. he's found a place in your heart already. The cat distribution system has a way. Um, please keep, keep us posted and send a photo if you Definitely. can. Dr. Amma is Good with us Bruce. today. Before we get the text line with questions, a really interesting message from Raja saying, please let us know when this will start in Dubai. I'm a pet owner and I always collect the poop of my dogs, but some pet owners are careless and irresponsible. So often poops are found near walkways and park areas. In France, I understand they're packed up and mailed to Poo Prince, a Tennessee company that will ID the poops maker. When a stool sample is matched with the right dog, the owner gets a fine. $250 for first offenders and $350 for each street side poo thereafter. Oh my goodness. Someone make this happen, please. Um, Dr. Amma, to the text line we go, asking for your insights. Um, Salvador's got a diet question, saying, my cat is only eating dry food. She doesn't like wet food. She's healthy, but we are concerned why she doesn't eat wet. Any advice? Does this really matter, Dr. Amma? If, if, the, if the cat's well hydrated and healthy, does it matter if it's wet or dry? Sometimes this is a eternal topic between uh, vets and many vets having different opinion, unfortunately. But uh, I'm uh, generally and strongly believe that dry food is much better food for dental uh, health of your cat. Definitely continue with dry food from time to time, depends on the age of your cat. Do blood work, just check on time, and that's it. Keep well, just to track hydration. If there's any other issues, like uh, track the consistency of the poop, uh, urine, and it's all fine. Trust me, it will be all fine. No worries if your cat is eating uh, dry food. Okay. Even even beneficial for for dental uh, for dental health. Thank you. And great question, Salvador. You sound like, sound like a great pet parent. Um, we've had a message from Sana saying, do I have to change my cat's food after being neutered? Would he gain a lot of weight? I'm a new adopter of a cat. Um, so any advice around post-neutering, um, licking yeah. the area, um, etc. So let's start with the immediate after. So mm-hmm. behaviours and, and helping after being neutering. And then we'll take the diet question, Dr. Amma. Yeah. Okay. So uh, basically, many times it happens that a uh, client's asking me where is the, 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 the reason. I ask them for reason for castration and the neutering and everything. They used to say spraying and stuff like that. Um, after eight or nine months of age, it's very, very hard to control any kind of things that we want to control before seven, of, uh, seven uh, months of age. What does it mean? It means that, uh, uh, for example, if we do castration with uh, five or six uh, or even uh, late seven months of uh, age, it's much better to do castration at that age than after one, one year. It's, it's much, much better. So do castration on time. Don't wait. And what about the diet? Do you need to make any adjustments? You know, is there a propensity to gain weight after neutering in cats? Of, of course, uh, uh, if you do castration when it's necessary to be done, when it's recommended, the, the metabolism will continue to be on that level. If you do castration after, uh, the metabolism will gonna definitely maybe double slow down uh, as, as, uh, as it was. So definitely be careful with that. Uh, it can happen. Okay. 
Let's talk dogs now. Lawrence has been in touch, got a nine-year-old chihuahua who's just been diagnosed with a grade four heart murmur. The vet has said there isn't much we can do, make sure she's not overstressed. Um, So the usual life expectancy for this would be one to two years. Does your vet have any experience of this? Any other advice? Um, Dog isn't massively symptomatic, quite lazy, does a little cough in the mornings, but enjoys walks, eats fine and seems happy. Poor little Chihuahua. Um, this is nothing uh, new, uh, especially for Chihuahuas. Uh, for example, every second cat and maybe every third dog on the planet has a, some heart murmur, uh, some type of heart murmur. So it depends on the time. It, uh, it depends on uh, gradu- graduity, uh, severity. Definitely, uh, I think my, one of my colleagues did uh, recently open uh, a specialist clinic, uh, cardio uh, clinic. So definitely i would suggest uh, clients to go and see my colleague uh, in dubai cardio vet and uh, that's it i might take you up on that because our 10 and a half year old um lawrence our, our cocker spaniel's got a heart murmur as well and it's it's a little bit more severe it's a it's a grade five six um yes. and we're having to just kind of monitor him when he's on the sofa you know check his breath rate um we've kind of decided to n- lay off the the daycare at the weekend and have a pet yeah. setter come to the house as well just to make sure he's not totally overstimulated but much like you're saying lawrence you know he has got a little cough occasionally but to look at him you know he's he seems absolutely fine he's on a couple of medications including a diuretic which means my goodness i've never seen a dog do so many wheeze and the sheer volume is quite something um but similar life expectancy that we've we've been told as well so Keep an eye on it. Um, Dr. Amma, would you mind telling us the name of your colleague for anyone that does want to seek out any expert cardio advice? Uh, uh, now, you mean? Yeah, tell us. Uh, Dr. Danilo, Dr. Danilo uh, Mamula, he's uh, recently opened a clinic in Dubai and he's very good. He has a certi- uh, certified, he's certified cardiologist, okay. European certified cardiologist. Good to know. Thank you so much. Um, JP says, hi both. I've just been quoted 2,500 dirhams by the vet to remove one wobbly tooth from my Pomeranian. Is this excessive? Okay. Can I let it come out naturally? Uh, recently, I had a, uh, I had a chihuahua from uh, Canada. And the chihuahua, that, uh, that dog was uh, constantly uh, wheezing and uh, sneezing and everything. And um, actually, I'm a specialist in dental surgery and I found a canine that is actually uh, the root of canine uh, tooth is actually located in the nasal cavity. So uh, things happen, things can be complicated, things can go escalate financial uh, expectation of the clients, small breeds, big problem. Always mm-hmm. remember, you need to keep going, keep tracking anesthesia, protocols, everything, especially if there's a, they usually after seven, eight, nine years of age. They have a massive, massive issues and always uh, uh, seek the help from the specialist. It's not just a pull out tooth. There's mm-hmm. many other things there that can include the problem that uh, even if it comes out, you need to close that hole. Uh, closing that hole, really, you need to be a specialist. You need to drill the bone. Then you need to put the flap and then you need to do at least two checkups to be sure that everything is fine definitely x-ray needs to be done to be checked everything i'm sorry that she had a, uh, such a big uh, big uh, um, big build but um, unfortunately uh, this is what it is sometimes even that things can go even five, six, seven thousand dirhams. Yeah, it's an expensive tooth fairy, but as you're saying, so yeah. much more involved than we might realise. Dr. Amma, we've run out of time. We have run out of questions. Anyone that's been in touch, I will put your messages in for next week's Pets and Vets. Dr. Amma, in the meantime, where can people find you online or in real life? 
We are uh, in Animalia, in Albertine. We are uh, uh, very open clinics. We do some uh, uh, welfare programs. We do uh, uh, sterilization. We do with uh, businesses, with hotels, with everything. We uh, we basically protect the cats, trying to help them as much as possible. Uh, most of the time, we do education with the school, and uh, this is what Dr. Susan is expert with this. Okay. And um, Thank that's you. basically... Next time you're on, it? I want to hear all 17 names of your cats, okay? If you, 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 you didn't I'm, tell I'm, me before, <laughs> I'm I giving you warning now. I'm giving you <laughs> yes. warning. Dr. Amma, thank you <laughs> thank so, you so, so much. much. Absolute pleasure to have him with us. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.